Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Welcome, everyone. It is Sunday, June the 5th, 2022. It is currently 3.39 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live two stories above a street right here in Abilene, Texas, where that street that's right below my window right now is probably about 180 degrees because it's like 100 degrees outside or something. I think we're supposed to get to 105 today. I don't know. I don't know if we'll get to that that temperature, but it is hot outside. And well, here I am ready to talk to you about a very important subject. Okay, now let me remind you what happened. At 10.05 a.m., I was standing behind the pulpit at Victory Baptist Church, located in the middle of nowhere, Texas. And I told everyone to open up their Bibles to the book of Jude as we continued our series in the book of Jude. But by 11.05 a.m., I was, well, it had gone from anticipation and excitement to preach to utter discouragement, defeat, embarrassment, frustration, wanting to crawl in a hole and bury myself. Uh, my face was all red because it, I just lost control of everything. I, look, I've been preaching for a long time and sometimes things just go wrong. And it was one of those days, everything went wrong. It just, I don't know what happened. There was a, There's still a disconnect. There is a disconnect of, over how I, what I'm trying to get across about the book and I think, I don't know what the disconnect is. I don't know what I'm, I'm doing, but I haven't, there's a disconnection where I'm trying to say, here's, here's the thing you need to remember about the book because everyone else approaches it in a different way. And then I, I clearly established that I think Jude cannot be properly, cannot be outlined in the typical way you do an outline verses one through you, like you say, you go like verse one through two is this, three through seven is this, eight through this is like, you just kind of go in order. I think it's one of those books where you can go the first couple of verses, you can go in order. Then you kind of have to go, well, these verses go with this concept. These verses go with these concepts because those two concepts are not the same. So we need to draw a distinction between them. I thought I'd kind of already established that, thought there was a, a kind of an agreed up, an agreement upon that. Come to find out, not so much. Now, it, it's my own fault uh, because I, I like to create a situation where, as a church, we work through a text together. And that's always dangerous, right? Because if you know anything about Christians, you don't agree on anything, right? So, but I thought that Jude, since it was such a short book, it would just be great to kind of work through the outlining together. But we we had arrived today. We had uh, got to open my Bible to Jude. We had arrived today to verse uh, nine. Well, really, we were going to jump to verse nine. Um, we were going to. I'm going to lose my voice. I've been doing a lot of preaching today, so stay with me. We were going to jump to verse nine, and I thought, okay, we've established. That verses one through two is the greeting. Verses three through four really establishes the purpose. And then five starts a section of a reminder. He's going to remind them of specific events. Now, the reason he's offering these reminders is not to warn the readers about about not following the false teachers. No, he's going to remind the readers of these events 
to exhort them and motivate them to contend for the faith. So he offers reminders of those who have departed from something and are being judged, just like these men who have crept into the church unawares, uh, as it's talked in the first part of Jude. They have departed from the faith and they are facing judgment. Because they're facing judgment, I'm going to remind you of how people are judged and that should motivate you to contend for the faith. But I think that the reminders are are kind of that what you have in the book of Jude, starting in verse 5 and following, is you have reminders and descriptions. Reminders and descriptions. And in my mind, you have to separate them in your outline. And my argument is this. A reminder is different than a description. A reminder says, I'm going to remind you of something that has happened. A description in this particular case is he's describing the teachers that are present in the present. Hey, I'm going to remind you of the past, right, to to exhort you to contend for the faith, and I'm going to describe the false teachers that is within your midst. I'm going to describe them. Now, maybe those descriptions have connection to the reminders, but for outlining purposes, our job is just to be able to outline it so that we can properly draw the correct distinctions. Now, I, def- I, identi- I what I, att- I originally did, if I can speak correctly, was when I did my first outline, as I kind of went with all of the other books and commentaries where they group things together. But every time I see them do that, I'm like, it makes no sense. For example, a lot of commentaries in the book of Jude will say verse 5 to 19 is descriptions of the false teachers. Now, here's the problem with that. Verse 9, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. There is no description of a false teacher in verse 9. In verse 17, but beloved, Remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no description of a false teacher in that verse. So to group those things together and say, hey, this is all a description, or to say these are all reminders is not accurate because some of these verses don't have reminders. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lust. That's verse 16. That's a description of someone in the present, not reminding them of something in the past. So I believe that you have to draw a distinction. But there are those who kind of want to try to group it together or intermingle them, right? Like here's the main point, then the sub point. So the main point is a reminder, then the sub point is the description. Now, I guess you can do that, but why intermingle them when separating them gives you a clear observation of what's in the text? Remember, a outline is simply an observational tool. Well, if I'm going to observe the text, let's observe it by drawing the distinction between those things that are different. And then now when I study the text and I interpret the text, by all means, I can say, you see that description? That flows from that reminder. The the description of the present flows from the reminder of the past. I can draw that correlation in the teaching, but my outline, I don't attempt to do that in my outline because that would be interpretive. 
The outline is simply observational. Whenever interpretation shows up in your outline, your outline's wrong. It's that simple. This is like basic hermeneutics 101. Your outline is an observational tool so that I can get the text, I can observe what's there. Once I've observed it, once I've outlined it, then I can walk through it in an interpretative way. I may draw connections then between the different parts of the outline, but the outline is some an observational tool. I'm not trying to correlate. I'm not trying. To, I've got to interpret that. Wait, I think that description flows from that reminder. That's an interpretation which should never show up in your outline. This is like basic stuff, right? So, but clearly everything went horribly wrong. So what do you do when you face failure? What do you do when you face defeat? What do you do when you face discouragement? Discouragement. What do you do when you face public humiliation because you lose control of your sermon and you turned out putting forth a piece of garbage called your Sunday school lesson? What do you do? Well, I wanted to just say, you know what, guys, we're not going to have church today. We're just going to call it a day. Everyone have a nice day. I'm not going to have church. I almost canceled services tonight. You think I'm joking. That's how frustrated I was. You know, I'm just cancel everything. Everyone have a great Sunday. You all go home. I'm going to go home and drown myself. Okay. Okay. I'm not really going to harm myself. Okay. But I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to stop by the liquor store. No, I'm not going to do that. But you, you, there's, what do you do? You can let discouragement and defeat and failure and humiliation destroy you or defeat you, or you can meet it with determination. So what I have been, ever since I've walked through the door, well, first I walked around the house pouting and going, what is wrong with you? What did you do? Mad at myself. But then at some point I was like, stop it. I'm going to be determined. I'm going to walk up those steps And I'm going to do everything I can between now and the time I drive back to that same church standing behind that same pulpit. I'm going to be determined to try to produce something that will be beneficial for everyone listening. So I decided to grab sermons that were preached at Southern Seminary um, where they did kind of a mini series on the book of Jude. Now, I love, I tell everyone If you have the Sermons 2.0 app, subscribe to every seminary that you can find on there, every Bible college, every Bible institute. The reason why is what's being taught in seminaries, Bible college, uh, and, and Bible institutes. That gives you an indication where the church is headed because those students learning now are going to be the pastors of the future. So I love listening to anything I can find from a seminary or a Bible college or an institute. I don't care if it's chapel. I don't care if it's a lecture, whatever I can find, because that gives me an idea of where the church is headed. So I tell everyone, subscribe to them all. But I grabbed some messages. Now, we, we in the last, our, our last live broadcast, we reviewed the introductory message, and it was some interesting stuff. I'm not going to go back and review all of it, but I decided to, to stop it because we ran out of time. And now I'm jumping to their sermon that covers Jude 4 through 16, which tells me they group Jude 4 through 16 in their outline. They group it together. Now, I'm curious, how do they group them together? Is the grouping of it together in their outline, listen, is it observational or is it interpretational? If it's interpretation, you can't do that in your outline. 
Look, I, I will, look, I know everyone may disagree with me, but I'm going to, I think it's a dogmatic hermeneutical fact. Your, uh, your outline is an observational tool. You can't interpret what you haven't observed. If you mingle things together, your observation just slowly becomes an interpretation and you've placed your interpretation in your outline, which I believe is a hermeneutical error. I would need my outline to be free from any interpretation. That's why as I start working my interpretation, right, I may go, oh, wait a minute, that doesn't work because remember that? Because my outline is always the reference tool. It's the cheat code. I can go back and go, no, 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 no. That interpretation does not meet that observation. But if my outline includes an interpretation, when I start interpreting it and I look back at the cheat code, I'm going to see that interpretation because it's already there in my outline. Therefore, I create a circular reasoning where I I already think, look, my outline tells me that I'm right because you placed your interpretation in your outline. You can't do that. (laughs) You can't do that. And I know people this morning were like, no, it's just observation. Okay. All right, if you think so, if you think so. I just know my observation tells me a a reminder is different than a description. A reminder is pointing backwards. The description is pointing to the present. They are a different thing. They are a different category for a different purpose. The reason Jude gives the people reminders is the reminders is to motivate them to contend. He gives them the descriptions for identifying. The reminder is to exhort them. The description is to help them identify two different purposes, completely different categories, and I believe must be two different categories in an outline. If I mingle them, then now I'm doing interpretation because now I'm going to try to demonstrate in my outline the connection between the reminder and the description, but that's an interpretation. That's my thoughts. Now, I say all of that. So what we're going to do is we're going to hear now Southern Seminary and how they handle this. They group verse 4, Jude 4 through 16, all in one category. Let's see what happens. Well, good morning. It is good to see you all. It is good to gather together. It is good to welcome those, especially who have come for the Boys College preview. We're thrilled you're here. We'll look forward to getting to know you. And uh, we hope you have a, a wonderful time and receive a wonderful welcome while you are here. This is what we are about. When you gather together in this room, uh, you find the heart of Southern Seminary and Boys College. And when you hear the joy and the singing of such Christ-centered songs and you You see the concern of uh, students and faculty, one for the other, and we get to add our voices together in uh, a great chorus. What could be better than that? And then we get to turn to God's Word, which is what we're doing right now, and we turn to the book of Jude. Incredibly short book with an incredibly powerful punch. And I've had several people over the course of the last week or so come up to me and say, how in the world are you going to preach this section? What in the world are you going to do with this? Well, 
Now, that's interesting. A lot of people, I think, say, what are you going to do with this section? Because I think the section is, one, confusing because it deals with events that you're like, wait, what, what, wait, what's going on here? Right. What, who are these angels? Wait, what happened here? So that makes it difficult enough. But I think another reason it's difficult is because so many people take this section and I think completely miss the point. I'm going to state it again. I think this is the hermeneutical key. The book was written to exhort people to contend. The reminders, starting in verse 5, I will put you in remembrance. The reminders are is not a warning for them to not follow the false teachers. No, he, he's not writing to, to warn them about not following the, the, uh, the false teachers. He is writing to exhort them, not to warn them, but to exhort, exhort them, to encourage them, to beg them, to plead with them, to contend with the false teachers. And how is he going to get them to contend? To remind them of what happens basically to false teachers, to those who abandon and depart from the faith, who leave and go against the faith once delivered unto the saints. When Israel goes against God, judgment. When the angels leave their first estate, judgment. When the people of Sodom go after strange flesh, judgment. When, um, I see here, uh, when the people go after the way of Cain, judgment. When people go after the way of Balaam, judgment. People, All of these reminders is to say these people are going to be judged. You should be motivated by the danger these false teachers are in to go contend with them so that you may be able to pluck them out of the fire. That's the point. Now, I don't know how he's going to handle this, but most books forget the fact that the book is written to exhort them to contend. Instead, writes it at like, hey, guys, don't follow the false teachers or you're going to be judged. I think that's a completely incorrect way to approach the book. I know clearly I'm in the minority, okay? I know everyone thinks I'm wrong, but when you read a book that says, <laughs> when you read a letter that says, beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and to exhort you that you should contend for the faith. And the reason I don't believe this is a warning, hey, don't follow the false teachers, is because he's already told them that they are preserved, called, and uh, sanctified. Hey, you guys are spiritually secure. These people, these false teachers, they're not spiritually secure. So I'm going to exhort you through the use of reminders that you will contend. And the reminders shows you what happens when, when people like these false teachers depart from the faith once delivered unto the saints. That The book tells me exactly how to interpret it. Now, how is he going to handle it? I don't know. Let's see. I've been here before. You either believe that the Bible is the Word of God or you don't. If you do know that every single word of Scripture is inspired, every word is equally inspired, fully inspired, plenary inspiration, that the Holy Spirit of God intends that we have this and hear this and teach this and preach this, that it is ours to teach and it is ours to hear. So brace yourselves. At Third Avenue Baptist Church, I am working verse by verse in teaching and preaching through the book of Leviticus. Brothers and sisters, you find out how committed to verse by verse exposition you are 
in the book of Leviticus. Just a few days ago, I found myself deep in the text explaining what secretion was which in male and female varieties, leading to different instructions of cleanliness and, and holiness. And if you can get through that with a Christian congregation, then you're the preacher. <laughs> and not only that, the Holy Spirit gave us these words And God has so instructed his church that we need these words. I've had the opportunity over the course of the last several years uh, to be given some preachers' libraries. Retired preachers. In one case, the the daughter of a dead preacher whose death had come unexpectedly and his, his... if I was a retired preacher, I don't think I would get rid of my books. I, I, I've got my uh, part of a lot of the books I have got from someone who's a retired pastor. But I'm like, you're retiring as a pastor and you're just going to get rid of your books? I, I don't know. I, I, don't, like, I only have the books for my job. I have the books for my spiritual edification. Now, if I'm dead, come and take them. If I'm dead, that's okay. But if I'm retired, I'm still going to be feasting upon God's word, reading and studying. Maybe if I, I get to the point that I couldn't read and I couldn't comprehend and okay. But I, I just sometimes I hear that. I got the, my books from a retired pastor. Well, why did he get rid of his books? Hey, I don't need these anymore. I'm done preaching. I, I Even if I don't have a congregation to preach to, I'm still going to take my books, study my Bible, stand in an empty room by myself it doesn't matter if there's no one in the house and I will sit there and still preach. Okay. I'm going to, I will find a microphone somewhere when I'm on my deathbed. (gasps) Welcome everyone to the theology central. Okay. My last words, I'm still going to find a microphone somewhere and say something. Okay. But all right. That's just, I just, it's just funny. I hear that all the time. I got my library from a retired pastor. I'm like, so retired, retirement means don't need my books anymore. What? No, you still need them, right? To re- especially if they're reference tools, right? I mean, reference tools, everyone should have. But whatever they are, if they give spiritual edification and challenge, I, I don't know. I don't know. But, okay. So bottom line is you're not getting my books unless I'm dead. All right, here we go. His ministry was abruptly ended, and for about three decades, his books had been frozen in time, and I was invited to come in and see if there were any that I wanted. I brought a good many back to the seminary, but also files and files of his sermons. And I just had to look through them at least and see where he had been preaching, what he had been preaching. And what I noted more than anything else was that his sermons were scriptural highlights of his choosing. And a lot of preachers preach that way, just uh, highlights of scripture according to their disposition. Now, I, 
Okay, a couple of things. One, now, this, I want to get to Jude. I still want to know what he's going to do with this section. Remember, that's the only reason we're doing this. But whenever I review a sermon, and I have not listened to this one. Remember, typically in sermon reviews, I do not listen to them first because I don't like it to be rehearsed. I, lo- I like it to be, I like the idea that like, hey, you drove by. What are you getting ready to do? Listen to a sermon. Well, let's listen to it together. And we listen and we pause and we talk. And we listen, we pause, we talk. We listen, we pause, and we talk. I used to have friends in Nebraska. We'd get together and just listen to sermons and with our Bibles open and notebooks and just, well, what about this? Well, I think this. Well, what about this? I, I, I will always miss those days because I actually had Christian friends. Well, they all were going into ministry. Sometimes it's hard to find Christians who want to just listen to sermons and talk about them, right? It's always cool when you can find, if you find a group of people like that, then just that's awesome. When like, hey, let's listen to a sermon and talk about it. not just to criticize, but to to discuss. So, but I, I've got to mention a couple of things here. First, I am of the opinion that I, as a pastor and preacher, have never kept and will never keep any of sermon notes at all. I throw. I don't want any of it because the next time I preach that passage, I do not want to ever under any circumstance, refer back to my old notes under no circumstances because my past learning is of no present value because if my past learning was incorrect, unless I restudy, I can never grow or overcome said mistake. I'm a fallible person, so every sermon I've preached has flaws in it. Every sermon I preach has error in it. Every pastor has to acknowledge that. We're fallible people. We're not infallible. We're, we, don't, we don't have magisterial authority. We don't have apostolic authority. We're just human beings trying to interpret the text. So however I interpreted, look, I've, I've taught through Levit, I've taught through all kinds of different books, but however I taught, taught it in the past, when I come to it in the present, you know what? I don't, la, 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 la. I don't want to know how I studied it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen to it. I don't want to know anything. I'm going to study it again and lay aside everything that I've ever learned. Lay aside and, and restudy it. Do new research, new study, so that I may go, man. And guess what? The sermon you hear in the present, you may go, I remember that sermon you preached. And you, you've completely changed your view. <gasps> no way. That's impossible because I'm infallible. There's, okay, I'm joking. Okay, I would be like, well, good, praise God. Praise God I changed my view because clearly I've learned. I'm continuing to learn. And guess what? The next time you hear it, it may be different. So I don't keep notes. Now, next, I I do agree that some pastors just seem to kind of just randomly choose whatever, whatever reason they just randomly choose. This is why the early church, the practice of using a lectionary is still somewhat appealing to me. Uh, and now I'm not saying everyone has to do lectionary, but I think if you use it, uh, one of the ancient lectionaries, old lect- lectionaries to preach, it is kind of fascinating because every week, you know, you have the Old Testament reading, you have the Psalm, you have an epistle, and you have a gospel. Mo- most, most of them do it that way. Now that's called three readings in a Psalm. Some call it four readings. Okay. But you don't get to choose, right? You, you, you know, you finish preaching on Sunday, maybe Monday you take the day off. Some pastors do that. And then on Tuesday, you open that lectionary going, oh, that's what I got to preach on this Sunday. Wow. What am I going to do with that? And then starts the week of fun, right? Research, sermon, writing, and, and just considering, considering, and then trying to figure out what you're going to do. 
I like that. And we've done, uh, at our church, we did an entire year using the lectionary. Now, if you don't use the lectionary preaching through a book, at least you're still forced to, oh, what's, ooh, I don't like that chapter. So um, verse by verse or lectionary is good. Now, I'm not saying there's never time for you to preach certain texts that you think are important for whatever reason or whatever motive. I think you should be able to to mix it up and be creative, but you do want to ensure that you're covering all the Word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, um, so everything. You want to make sure you're covering both. But all right, let's go. I, I still want to, Jude, that's what we want to get to. It's one of the reasons why I strongly commend preaching and teaching through entire books of Scripture and doing so in a way that's strategic and comprehensive that turns to both the Old Testament and the New, not only the Gospels and the Pauline epistles, but but other texts, including the book of Acts and the book of Hebrews and the New Testament and, of course, the book of Revelation. And in the Old Testament, looking at the historical books, looking at the Pentateuch, looking at the wisdom literature, not to mention the prophets, the Psalms, and again, not looking for highlights, but rather working through the text as the Holy Spirit has given the text to us. And that means sometimes you rub right up against things your grandmother had not expected you ever to talk about in public. But here's a newsflash for you. As much as you love your grandmother, she is not the Holy Spirit. Evidently, the Holy Spirit intended for us to have these passages The text of our consideration today is the longest single text in one of the shortest books of the Bible. We're going to take it whole. But in order to understand it, we're going just to begin in the beginning of the book, because after all, we are only three verses in. So as you turn to the text, we're going to begin with the very first verse of Jude, and then we will go all the way through verse 16. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now here it comes. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to announce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. 
But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that godly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage." Okay, now, a couple of things. What's interesting is it appears he's going to group, he, he groups verse 4 uh, with uh, everything from 5 to 16. He groups it all together. Now, outlining, again, I've, I've tried to state this so many times, outlining is the, an observational tool. You're not to allow interpretation into your outline. It's observational, observational, observation. The quality of your observation determines the quality of your interpretation. This is basic hermeneutics, hermeneutical rules, I think, that everyone has to follow, okay? Now, in my view, verse 1 and 2 is the greeting, all right? And, and the author is identified, the recipients are identified, and the blessing is given, okay? I think that's verse 1 through 2. I think verse 3 and 4 gives the purpose of the writing, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith. The purpose of the letter is to move these people who are called, preserved, and uh, sanctified. These people who are sanctified, preserved, and called, as, as identified in verse 1. These people who are spiritually secure. Hey, in your spiritual security, I have to motivate you that from that position of security, you go contend for the faith. And I believe verse 4 goes with the purpose. Why you need to contend for the faith is, guys, I don't know if you realize this, some people have come walking in by stealth, they've crept in unawares. And these are ungodly men who've turned the grace of God into lasciviousness and they're denying Jesus and denying God. They're in the church. You're in a position of spiritual security because you are sanctified, preserved, and called. Now I've got to beg you and motivate you to contend with these people. So I believe three and four belong to the purpose of the book. Verse five, I believe, begins the begins to give them reminders look i will therefore therefore because of the purpose the reason i the reason i'm writing to you i'm because of this reason i'm going to put you in remembrance i'm going to remind you of things the goal of the reminder is to move them to contend and he's going to remind them of these horrible examples where judgment occurred. And a judgment occurred because, in a sense, they uh, they have 
they had departed from the faith once delivered unto the saints. These men who crept in unawares, they have, they're gone against the faith. They're going against the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. These judgments that he reminds them of are of situations where people departed, in a sense, from the truth. You have Israel who departs from God and doesn't believe God or trust God. They are destroyed. You have angels who keep not their first estate. They depart. They end up in chains. You have Sodom and Gomorrah who depart from what they should do and go after strange flesh. They are judged. I think the reminders is to say, these people are going to be judged. These false teachers are going to be judged. You need to go contend. In the midst of the reminders, so the reminders is to motivate them to contend. In the midst of the reminders, what is inter, is kind of placed within these reminders, in between these reminders are descriptions describing the false teachers. The reminders is to encourage to contend. The descriptors are there to identify. The reminder has a different purpose than the description. The reminder and description are different. The reminder looks to things in the past. The description looks to the people that were in the present. They're different. That's what, that's what I'm going to contend. So I believe that verse 4 belongs to the uh, purpose of the book. Verse 5, and then you have to break it down. 5 is a reminder. 6 is a reminder. 7 is a reminder. 8 is a reminder. Now, verse 11, I do agree, could be argued, well, it's a description and a reminder. I understood. You could put this in both, right? You could put verse 11 in the reminder section of your outline and in the description section of your outline, and it would fit. On one hand, he reminding them of Cain, Balaam, and Kor. In the other way, he's describing the current people who've crept in as people who've gone after the way of Cain who have gone greedily after the era of Balaam and have perished in the gainsaying of Kor. So he's describing them that way. Then he goes back to describe them. And then he returns right back to a reminder in verse 14, where he talks about Enoch. And then in verse 17, another reminder. So I think you have reminders and you just break, you just in your outline, which verses are the reminders, which verses are the descriptions. The reminder is to motivate them to contend. The description is giving them what the identifiers to identify the false teachers. I, I think this is pretty straightforward. The, verse 11, I think, is it verse 11? Verse 11 would go in your reminder section of your outline and in your description part. And you would put them both because the verse does both. It reminds and it describes. Both occurs. Now, some want to intermingle them, but if I intermingle, my outline starts turning into an interpretation, which it cannot do. All right, let's see what he does. Well, then, let's have lunch. What exactly do you do after reading a passage like that? Is this, is this about your church? Is this about my church? Is this about Christ's church? It is about the church. And it's a warning that is given to us as the Holy Spirit inspired Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, to write these words. And you'll recall that Jude began with such a beautiful summary of the gospel, writing to Christians as those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And, And then he had spoken of his concern. And remember what he said. 
He said he was very eager to write about our common salvation, but he found it necessary to appeal that the church should contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, it appears within the context of what follows that Jude is not saying, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but urgency meant I had to write something else. No, it looks to the contrary, like he's saying, I'm even more concerned than I was before to write to you about our common salvation, to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And even as I preached verse 3, I knew verses 4 through 16 were coming I did warn you. Brace yourselves. This is a barrage of judgment. It is a heaping up of indictments. It is a graphic display of God's indictment and coming judgment. One of the ways that that the modern age seeks to, to handle spiritual things is through what in the Enlightenment was called the domestication of transcendence. So we'll take transcendence, but let's domesticate it. Let's, uh, let's housebreak it. Uh, we, we, we want theism, but not, not theism that terrorizes us. We want, we want transcendence, but uh, let's, let's not make it too transcendent. Let's try to cut all this down to size. We try to domesticate texts, which literally means we try to housebreak texts. We, we try to train texts not to threaten us. We try to look at texts and say, okay, we can handle this. It isn't what it appears to be. We can find a way to live with this. That's an awesome term, the, the domestication of transcendence. The domestication of transcendence or the domestication of the text and we got to domesticate it. We've got to housebreak it. We got to we got to make it more. It's got to be able to live in this house. And if we don't like the text, we domesticate it so it's more well. It's more appealing, and it can stay in the house, and everything is good. Uh, I, I, that's a beautiful. That's a powerful image. Awesome term. Awesome idea. Um, and uh, wow, th- there's a lot. There's a man. That's that's some good stuff. That's some good stuff. I still want to know how he's going to outline this section. That's what we're listening for. Okay, here we go. And usually what the church does in trying to deal with texts it doesn't really want to hear is that it just never reads them. The church never hears these texts. No one ever preaches them. But here we are. Jude 4. The first thing we see is we just follow through the text is that the church is warned by Jude that it has been infiltrated. You know, right now, even in these weeks, Americans and others around the world are being awakened to the fact that our holiday from history is over, that uh, the age of world peace, indeed, did not arrive, that... Nation is warring against nation. Every once in a while, the church just has to awaken out of its slumber to know that we are engaged in a combat that never ceases. 
and Jude, along with others, in the New Testament, like in the prophets of the Old Testament, Jude issues a warning about infiltration. During the Cold War, when I was young, it became more and more documented that Soviet agents have been infiltrating organizations and institutions in the United States by means of espionage. By the time the Verona Papers became known at the end of the Cold War, with the breakup of the Soviet Union, the Verona Papers indicated that not only were the fears of infiltration justified, the extent of the infiltration went far beyond what anyone could have imagined. And you say, you know, well, that was during the Cold War. Well, ask Senator Dianne Feinstein currently Democratic United States Senator from California. It turned out that her driver as a United States Senator in just the last several years was a communist Chinese spy. And you say, well, how dangerous could it be that she was her driver? She used the time in the car to discuss national security issues because it was safe. <laughs> Infiltration. Protestant churches were warned during the 1950s and 60s that communist infiltrators would seek to enter into churches and try to, try to weaken those churches I'm not sure that happened or not because most of the liberal churches basically committed theological surrender before any gun was ever pointed to them. We didn't, we didn't get to watch long enough to see how long it would take before they caved because they basically surrendered in the beginning of the fight. Jude's writing about a different kind of infiltration. There are those who crept in. Look at the language. Hey, this is so graphic. It, it, this is people creeping into the church, and long ago, too. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So the condemnation is, is God's eternal verdict. These are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality uh, just so that you know, the I don't know if we have to go to this his eternal verdict. I think we can go that these men were condemned of old, like in the Old Testament, condemned by the prophets. The prophets were condemning false teachers all the way back, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. The false prophets and false teachers have been condemned, and these are men who have been condemned along with all the false teachers. Some take this back to these were condemned from eternity past. This is a dealing with God's eternal decrees. I don't know if we have to take it to that. We've discussed this, but however you want to look at it, okay. I still want to know, how is he going to outline this section? That's what I want to know, all right? And, and I want to know how he understands the purpose of the reminders. That's what we're waiting for. And deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Could you imagine a more severe indictment? But consider the Apostle Paul uses the very same language. Second Timothy chapter 3 Paul writes, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Creep into households, creep into churches. And you say, that's creepy. That, that, that's scary language. And I'm glad to be a part of a church where that would never be a problem. 
I want to give you firsthand testimony of a church destroyed. It is the church into which I was baptized as a Christian. It was a church in Lakeland, Florida that was one of the strongest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. The pastor of that church, as you have heard me say before, the man who baptized me had done his Ph.D. under A.T. Robertson here at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. The church was in many ways the the representation of, of, of a strong congregation, strong lay people, strong lay leadership, strong pastor, strong doctrine. But something very strange was going on in Lakeland, Florida, the town where I was born and spent the first 13 years of my life. Most of what happened happened after my family had moved to South Florida, but we saw a wonderful, seemingly impregnable gospel church destroyed by infiltration. A very large movement had uh, started in a, uh, basically a storefront church there in Lakeland, Florida. It grew into a very large movement, a very large movement that eventually gained national attention, and predictably a very large movement that eventually brought horrifying judgment upon itself. They began to seek to infiltrate other churches with false doctrine. I would have thought that the church in which I'd been baptized, the church that had so prominently preached the gospel, I would have thought that a church that that was so well taught in the Scripture would have been impregnable from such infiltration, but I am here to tell you it was not. Within 10 years, that church had split. One of the great issues of pride of my boyhood was seeing this church build a grand, that is, my church, the first church of which I was ever a member, the first building campaign to which I ever had the opportunity to contribute. I saw this beautiful, massive structure built for the worship of God for Christian education. I was there about five years ago, and the building is now the chapel of a Catholic boys' school. Church just basically destroyed. Infiltration happens. And sometimes it happens by some kind of almost demonic strategy. Sometimes it happens by people who are, are just joining a church and the church has such lax membership standards that it really doesn't know who it is accepting into membership. A church can be infiltrated in many different ways, but as Jude tells us here, this is part of a long-term diabolical strategy. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. So in other words, they, they are going to face eternal condemnation, which is made abundantly clear later in the text. They're described as ungodly people, clearly, but notice what they do in their ungodliness. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a denial of Christ, and it is an elevation of sexual immorality, sensuality. 
And, and sometimes when the, the Bible speaks of sex, we are accused of reading sensuality into it. Well, let me just give you a clue here. There is no danger of reading sensuality into it. It is explicitly what is indicted here. Perverting the grace of God into sensuality, some kind of licentiousness, some kind of libertinism, some kind of sexual immorality that is actually occasioned by a perversion of the gospel. And let's face it, we understand how that could happen. So let's just look each other in the eye. We understand how this can happen. If you turn the gospel into nothing more than an escape from hell ticket, and you tell people there is nothing you can do to lose this ticket, and you make... The, the, the biblical doctrine of conversion, something so superficially transactional as that, then rather than sending people to heaven, you can send them to hell because they will die in their sins and trespasses, never having come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now, I was doing a really good job of using the uh, invasion language. Now, when we started Jude... I use the concept of invasion and insurgency, that once the invasion occurs, then it rises up as an insurgency to tries to come from within. He's clearly describing what is happening in the church. To me, that's why I would group verse 4 with verse 3. That gives the purpose for the book, the reason the book is being written. All right, And then I would take verse 5 and separate it in my outline. I'm curious, though, he groups this all together. Verse 5, though, I'm going to put them in remembrance, right? He's going to put place them in remembrance to deal with this threat that has come into the church, these men who have crept in unawares. What we want to see is how, what he's going to do with this remembrance. How is he going to interpret this remembrance? Because you see very, you see, well, you see uh, in most of commentaries, the way they handle it, I completely disagree with. I'm going to be curious to see what he does with this. Here we go. The gospel is not a get-out-of-jail, get-into-the-brothel ticket. We don't know all the specifics, and yet the text is specific enough. And notice that there's a twofold issue here. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, which at the very least means the worship of the flesh, and here's the other side, here's the other scissor, they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. But then the text goes on, and we have to look at it quickly. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What we are given in this passage are numerous, repetitive, incredibly diverse pictures from the Old Testament particularly and from the Old Testament times of rebellion against God. Okay, I'm going to say you're given reminders because, well, the text says, I will put you in remembrance. So I believe in verse 5, and clearly verse 17, but beloved, remember ye the words. There are a bunch of reminders from 5 through 17. I believe these reminders, I'm going to continue to say this, these reminders are designed 
to motivate those who are spiritually secure because they've already their security has already been clearly identified that that, that in, in uh, Jude chapter 1 the ones he is writing to in, in Jude verse 1 I should say the the ones he is writing to he's referred to them as sanctified preserved and called they're sanctified preserved and called now those of you who are spiritually secure I'm writing to you to exhort you that you will contend for the faith once and delivered for the saints why? Why do you need to do this? Because people have crept in unawares, who've taken the grace of God, turned it into lasciviousness, and they've denied God. They're in your church. You need to contend. Now, how is he going to motivate them to contend? He's going to give them reminders showing you what happens to those who depart, in a sense, from the truth. Just like you, you're going to contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints, because there are those who are, in a sense, departing from that faith and denying that faith. Now, I'm going to remind you of what happens to those kinds of people. They face judgment. That should motivate you, those of you who are spiritually secure, to contend with those who are facing judgment. This is to motivate them. Then in the midst of the reminders, there are descriptions so that they can identify the false teachers. There are reminders to motivate. There are are descriptions to identify. Now, what a lot of people do is take the reminders and preach it this way. He gives them reminders to warn them not to face the false, to follow the false teachers or they're going to be judged. But that goes against the entire purpose of the book. It's not to warn them not to follow the false teachers. It's to exhort them to contend with the false teachers. I've heard so many sermons who completely change the purpose of the book. Now, let's see what he does. He, I, Right, he's going to give them these great pictures, I'm going to say great reminders of judgment. Now, what, how is he going to identify why this is occurring? What, what, what is he going to do with this? Here we go. And even as there are certain people who have crept in unawares into the churches, the reality is that Israel also provides a picture of repeated rebellion and failure, corruption. And here we are reminded, and look at the language. This is, you talk about a a Christological clue. Well, how about this? We're talking about Egypt. We're talking about God's people being rescued out of Egypt, and we're told that Jesus did it. Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. You say, well, when did that happen? Well, it happened over a 40-year period. Those who rebelled, you'll remember, were required as Israel wandered in the wilderness. That generation died out before the children of Israel entered the land of promise. Sin comes with consequences. Rebellion against God comes with condemnation. And we're told the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So the first example given here in this particular paragraph is the example, first of all, of Israel's rebellion in the wilderness. And just, just, just remember what happened. They died out. Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. And the second, the second illustration, oddly enough, are angels who didn't stay within their own sphere of authority. They left their proper dwelling. Now, hold on to this because this is going to come back. 
They are kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Here's another shocking issue here. We're, we're going to have to look at some interesting questions as we walk through these paragraphs here in the central portion of the book of Jude. But we are given a good deal of information here about things we otherwise know nothing about in, in terms of, of the canonical record. There, there's nothing in the Old Testament that, that actually helps us to know exactly even what Jude is talking about we're going to see he, he goes to Jewish apocalyptic literature. He goes to so some of the intertestamental literature. He talks about things that evidently he knows because the Holy Spirit tells him, and we don't know it otherwise. We don't know a lot about what happened to the angels, but here we are told that some of the angels in rebellion are being kept in eternal chains in gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The function for us is to understand, number one, that the indictment of these angels is that they did not stay in their proper sphere of authority. A very interesting statement. Uh, that, that, that tells us something of the priority of sin that that represents in God's own mind. Trying to be what we are not turns out to be a deadly, deadly thing. The angels daring to leave their proper sphere of angelic authority, turns out that brings on eternal condemnation. And look at again at the language, being kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And then a third illustration, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now, th those three examples, just to, the, the, the children of Israel in their disobedience, the angels who did not respect their proper sphere of authority, and then Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities of the plains, which indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Now, let me just point out, when certain people creep in, and, and when you have creeping compromise, creeping false teaching, creeping doctrinal atrophy and rebellion in the churches, it shows up in interesting ways. And, and sometimes it, it creeps, and then, <laughs> and then sometimes it seems to collapse. I, I want you to track something with me. This is very, very, very important. I have detected a pattern in the church history. I'm sure I'm not the only one to see it, but it is graphic in my mind because of the lifespan of my own experience. In other words, I, I, I came to theological studies in a specific time in the second half of the 20th century when theological liberalism, which had been in the driver's seat of, of say, American and European theology for about 100 or 150 years, that liberal theology was, was, was that against which Orthodox Christianity was having to define itself. And, and so you would have someone like Harry Emerson Fosdick, and, uh, a famous preacher in New York City, and he, he, he would preach messages in which he did such things as to argue that the virgin birth didn't happen, was the kind of supernatural claim that could easily be dismissed, wasn't necessary to the gospel, and, and, and therefore just didn't, didn't belong in the church's preaching. It was an embarrassment. And of course, that brought on other kinds of responses. J. Gresham Machen, the great conservative defender of Christianity, wrote his classic book, Defending the Virgin Birth, and you say, where is that now? And, and the reason I bring that up is because there is at least enough residual Christianity in those churches then, those liberal churches, there is at least enough residual Christianity that 
a liberal preacher believed that he had to explain why we didn't have to believe in the virgin birth again. My point is, you don't have to worry about hearing any of that in liberal churches today. There's no need to deny the virgin birth. No one believes the rest of it either. But specifically, the issue of sexual morality and and the question about the moral status of same-sex sexual relations. When I came to seminary, and I arrived in 1980, Some of the liberal Protestant denominations were just then trying to find a way to exegetically, theologically, hermeneutically normalize homosexuality. And and the leading edge of this was male homosexuality, same-sex relationships and behaviors. And so there was an entire library of literature written back then written by people with names like John Boswell and others, and they they went to great lengths to try to say, you don't have to read the Bible that way. You don't have to read the Bible that way. There are other ways to read the Bible. For one thing, you can take those texts and you can understand that some of those are Israel's limited ability, it's it's heteronormativity, it's uh, over-reading of the text, or it's not talking about what you think it's talking about. So, Okay, now, this is what a lot of preachers do with this. You, you, you look at Jude and you see the, the sins that are mentioned here, right? These angels, okay, what, who are these angels? Some believe it's Genesis 6, the, the sons of God, daughters of men. I know other people d- don't agree with that. However, it would explain the flood. We, we, we could get into a lot of discussion, but whoever these angels are, they end up being placed in chains. And then Sodom, Gomorrah, everybody immediately runs to homosexuality, homosexuality. Just do realize you have angels in six and seven, the men of Sodom, Gomorrah were going after and trying to have relations with Angels. So you have angels really in verse 7. They went after strange flesh. They were going after angelic beings as well. And in both cases, you have if, if verse 6 is referring to, if it's referring to the daughters of men and the sons of God in Genesis 6, you have angels leaving their first estate, leaving their spiritual realm to try to engage in physical relations with the daughters of men. I know some people disagree with that, but I'm just saying if that's the case, then in seven, you have the men of the city trying to engage in physical relations with angelic beings. It's very similar. Both are leaving, in a sense, as it says, they're leaving the, 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 their correct estate. They're departing from something. They're departing from where they should be, going to something that they are not to be involved with and something they're not to do. So what we have a tendency to do here in Jude is we start focusing on those sins. And we preach against the sins. We talk about how this creeps into the church. But in some cases, that really misses, I think, the point of the book. The point of the book is to encourage people to contend for the faith. Why do you need to contend for the faith? Because the because people have crept in who are destroying the grace of God and turning it into lasciviousness, and they're denying God. Well, what happens to people who turn the grace of God into lasciviousness and deny God? What happens to those kinds of people? Well, let me remind you what happens to those kinds of people. What happens to those kinds of people are they destroyed just like Israel was when they came out of the land of Egypt because they believed not. Let me tell you what happens to these kinds of people. The same thing that happened to angels who did not keep their first estate and were locked in chains. Let me tell you what happens to these kinds of people. They're like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah who were suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. 
The key is to motivate them that these teachers are going to face the same kind of judgment. So be motivated to contend. For some weird reason, we see the sins and we start preaching like, these are the sins we have to avoid. That's not the message. The message is these are the sin, these examples of sin and judgment is to remind us that these people who have crept into the church, they're going to be judged. It is to motivate. It's not to warn the church against these sins. These examples are to motivate them to contend with the people who have crept in who are going to be judged. And this fits perfectly when we read this. Verse 23, or in verse 22, or verse 21, I should say. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, and of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. Hey, have compassion, have mercy for these people. Remember those reminders? Those reminders should make you realize how fearful the judgment of God is. You've got people in your church who are going to face that judgment. Have compassion. For some weird reason, we get into Jude and we preach it and we like liberalism and homosexuality. These are the sins. No, no, that's not the point here. The point here is the men who have crept in are going to face the same judgment as these historical examples, which should motivate you who are called preserved, and sanctified to contend with them. Everyone almost completely loses the plot here. When the Bible's talking about the the wrongness and and delivers condemnation on same-sex sexual relations, it's really about non-consensual sexual relations. It's not about sexual desire. It may be about certain kinds of of coercive acts. But, of course, that just doesn't fit the Scripture. It never fit the Scripture. It doesn't fit Romans chapter 1, where the passage could not be more clear indicting the desire. It's a wrong desire. See, this is quickly turning into a sermon about homosexuality. Jude, this section, is reminding those in the church that the people who have crept in are going to face like judgment. So be motivated to contend with them so they will not face said judgment. This is not written to say, let's talk about the sin of homosexuality. No, he's just using these examples to exhort them to contend. I don't know why everyone loses the plot in preaching Jude. It's like, it's like everyone just forgets Hey, okay, I know, I know what the purpose of the book is, but man, I got to talk about, I got to talk about these, I got to talk about homosexuality. I mean, you mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got to preach about homosexuality. Now, by all means, you can preach a sin, you can preach a sermon against the sin of homosexuality, and clearly you can mention Sodom and Gomorrah. But in Jude, it's being used to exhort Christians to contend with those who are going to face the same judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the people who crept in are the ones who are going to face that judgment. It couldn't be more clear in the language that is used. 
The, the Apostle Paul, for example, if you take the, the Romans literature and the, and, and the passages from 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul explicitly uses such graphic nouns so that both the active and the passive partner, and you say, yes, are you talking about this in church? Yes, it's in the Bible, are both indicted. Unlike in Rome, where only one of them was considered to have been sinfully or, or shamefully behaved. It's, it's all there. And the point is, is that you had liberal biblical scholars who were saying, if you look back, and you look to Genesis 19, and you look back to the Old Testament record of, of the sin of Sodom and the sin of Gomorrah, but in particular, the, the sin of the men of Sodom, they will say, look, it wasn't male homosexuality. It was inhospitality. It was that they were inhospitable. And people with a straight face made these arguments. And you may not have even heard these arguments because the people making those arguments don't even make them anymore. I just noticed as I was thinking about this, even in preparing to preach this text, those churches had gone so far from the gospel that like the fact they never have to defend not believing in the virgin birth anymore because they just never talk about it anymore and there's no one left in their churches to ask about it anymore. They've moved so far on that basically they've given up on the argument the Bible doesn't condemn same-sex relationships, behaviors, and affections to well, it's the Bible. What's that got to do with us? I can still remember hearing a lecture in which I was told that this is all laid out, and, and I was told here is what some of the new scholarship is presenting, and it was, it was John Boswell's scholarship. I still remember, still remember the book, still Confined where with my highlighter and my red flare pen, I had underlined the offending passages where he said it was inhospitality, not sensuality, that it was homophobia on the part of the Christian church that led Christians to think now that Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis 19 had anything to do with sex. But you know who else believed that evidently? I can remember sitting and reading the Bible when it struck me, someone else believed that there was a link that was sensual, and that someone else was Jude. As Jude says it right here in this paragraph, he speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged, well, in hospitality, yes. That is not where he goes. In sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Notice the judgment again, just as we saw before. Serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Uh, and this is just, once again, it, it, I, don't, I don't understand why the, the, the whole structure of the book is forgotten. This is, why, this is why I wanted to use Jude as a hermeneutical lesson. Like if I was teaching hermeneutics, I would use Jude because everyone falls into this trap, right? It's like, okay, so what's the purpose of Jude? To get you to contend for the faith. All right, so you got the people in the church contend for the faith. Why do I need to contend for the faith? Because people have crept in and, who, and these men have crept in. They're turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and they're denying God. Okay, now, well, how am I going to motivate these people in the church to contend with the people who have crept in? How am I going to motivate them to do this? Let's see. I know what I'll do. I'll use reminders. I will remind you that of the judgment that's going to happen to these people. 
That should motivate you to contend with them because you should be overcome with emotion and compassion that these men are going to be destroyed like these examples show destruction. It's not for us to start talking about homosexuality or all of these things. It's for us to go, this should motivate us. For the people who have crept into the church today who are destroying the grace of God and denying God, we should be motivated because those people are going to be judged. They're going to be destroyed. What we have a tendency to do in Christianity is like, well, they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be judged. They're going to face their judgment. You know, and we almost celebrate it where I'm like, well, they're going to burn in hell. Almost like it's a celebration instead of it should be like, oh man, they're going to be judged. I need to contend with them. I need to show compassion that I'm able to pull them from the fire. I don't want them to be destroyed. I don't want this to happen to them. We should be motivated to contend. For some weird reason, we get into this section and it's like, oh, we can talk about homosexuality. Oh, we can talk about angels. Oh, we, and then, and then it all just starts the whole purpose of the book just as almost like we forget it. Now, this one, we will have to finish the review later. The reason we have to finish it later is because I've already been on the air for an hour and 15 minutes, and and the last live broadcast was over an hour. So now I've almost done three hours of, about two and a half hours of live broadcasting just this afternoon, two hours of teaching this morning, and here in about 30 minutes or less, I got to get ready and drive to the church to do another hour of teaching on pneumatology, uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So we have to stop. Now, we're going to stop at the 20 minute mark, 20 minutes, I'm going to say the 21 minute mark. 21 minute, I got to write this down because as soon as I close down the software, it's uh, it's all going to go away. Now, if you want to find this sermon, it's on the Sermons 2.0 app. Um, it's under Southern Seminary, Dr. Albert Moeller. I would greatly, I would challenge you to, to subscribe to their feed and you should listen to every seminary, every Bible college, every Bible institute on Sermons 2.0 or, or Sermon Audio, you should subscribe to because I think it's very beneficial because hearing what's being preached in Bible colleges and seminaries now helps us know where the church is going. My concern here is, once again, this is another example of preaching from Jude where you're like, but you're, you're missing the point. The point here is not about homosexuality. The point here is there was judgment. And these false teachers are going to be judged. The reminder is to motivate the contending. It's not a warning for them not to follow the false teachers. It's a a reminder to motivate them to contend. That's literally what the text says. So so many times in our preaching, we, we establish the purpose, and then in our preaching, we forget the purpose. So then our hermeneutics, we start interpreting the text completely separate from the purpose that the book is there to serve. Our hermeneutic has to be consistent with the purpose of the book. Jude gives us, that's why it's such a great hermeneutical exercise. In any, in any hermeneutics class, I'm giving Jude as an assignment. I'm giving it as an assignment, but it almost always falls apart. Um, because, because they're, Oh, I can preach on homosexuality. Oh, and I understand the temptation. You may explore the subject, but you've got to bring it back to the purpose of the book. When you're, when your sermon or interpretation becomes disconnected from the purpose of the book, then your hermeneutic is broken. Now, Dr. Albert Muller can outpreach me any day of the week. He's smarter than I will ever be. He knows more than I will ever know about preaching. 
But in this particular case, he seems to follow what I hear all the sermons do. (gasps) Oh, Sodom Gomorrah, we can start talking about homosexuality. Oh, wait, we can talk about liberals who deny the supernatural work of God. But, but, But that's not the point here. The point is those false teachers are going to receive like judgment. Now, those of us who are spiritually secure should be so motivated by compassion that we want to run to those false teachers going, no, you're going to be judged. Let me contend with you. That's the purpose of the book. All right, I'll stop. All right, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. We'll be back on the air in an hour. Pneumatology, Doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Tune in. Thanks for listening.